Welcome back to This Tuesday's Across the Movie Aisle, presented by Bulwark Plus. I am your host, Sunny Bunch, culture editor of The Bulwark. I'm joined, as always, by the award-winning Alyssa Rosenberg of The Washington Post and Peter Suderman of Reason Magazine. Alyssa, Peter, how are you today? I'm swell. I am happy to be talking about movies with friends. First up in controversies and controversies, Nikki Haley went on SNL, and some people are pretty upset about it. Haley, of course, is not the first presidential candidate to be on the show. We've had Hillary Clinton, John McCain, Sarah Palin, Barack Obama, Bernie Sanders. For years, SNL has played host to polls desperate for a bump in their polls. Uh, Despite the fact that it's a quadrennial tradition to have politicians running for president show up on the venerable skit show and its predecessors, you know, this trend started, you could go back to Richard Nixon's appearance on Laughing back in 1968, right? Uh, Critics started looking askance at the practice following Donald Trump hosting the show on the way to his surprise 2016 presidential win. Now, members of SNL reject the idea that they, quote-unquote, humanized Donald Trump, as one writer noted when he hosted the show. He was trailing Ben Carson in Iowa uh, and seemed kind of destined to flame out. Uh, But I would bet a million dollars, if I had it, that he will never be on that show again. I don't think they want to court that sort of controversy. The argument against having Haley on is apparently that she is no different than Trump. As one writer in The Guardian put it, the, quote, the hypocrisy of SNL cozying up to Haley in order to bash Trump is so rich as to be sickening. There is zero daylight between the two. Haley's record is just as full of racist, anti-democratic policy and rhetoric as her former bosses. She is just outwardly less grotesque. Presenting her as a reasonable alternative to Trump reeks of liberal desperation, end quote. Like, I have my issues with Haley. I mean, I personally wish she was running a Chris Christie-style burn-down-the-house sort of campaign against Trump, though I recognize that's probably not how you win a GOP primary. But the idea that she's no different than Trump, that there's no difference between her and Trump, there's no daylight between her and Trump, is the sort of thing that leads people to say, well, this is how you get Trump. Look, literally any GOP candidate who is not Trump is preferable to Trump, even if you don't agree with a single one of their policy positions. This isn't to say you have to support Nikki Haley in the general, uh, but I feel like it's incumbent upon critics to, at the very least, recognize that she's not going to, you know, try to overturn the election if she loses. All right. I don't like getting overtly political on the show. This is this is, you know, this is a respite of sorts from politics. And Haley's appearance itself wasn't frankly that political. She poked fun at Trump for not debating her. Uh, she poked fun at herself for not answering uh, slavery when asked about the origin of the Civil War. Frankly, the biggest crime was that the skit wasn't funny at all. These things are never funny, of course. No politician's ever going to actually let the show really savage them. Uh, and as a result, it's all kind of toothless. Uh, as far as these toothless things go, whatever, it was fine. Which leads me to my suggestion, Alyssa. Could we please, for the love of God, kill this tradition once and for all? No more politicians on SNL. Just just don't do it anymore. Isn't the controversy here that people still care about what happens on Saturday Night Live? Great point. Who is mad about this? Yeah, look, I mean, I just, as the resident lefty person on the show, I think Nikki Haley would be worse than Trump in terms of her ability to actually be competent and implement various conservative policies that um, that I think are not good, that I disagree with. But she's obviously better than Trump in that she believes in a peaceful transfer of power and our electoral system. And she's not like a lunatic who spends all of her time posting deranged things on social media and defaming little old ladies who they've been convicted of sexually abusing of, right? Like, I mean, I would not vote for Nikki Haley over Joe Biden, but I would obviously vote for Nikki Haley over Donald Trump 
if I believe that the state of American democracy is the most important thing on the ballot there. Wait, Alyssa, you're not a Republican primary voter? I, I, I had you not. pegged wrong this whole time. <laughs> I Boy, mean, I'm gonna we're gonna have to have some real talks in the group chat afterwards. From Peter's to be fair, like I am I'm like a normie quasi suburban mom of two and leader of a Girl Scout troop. So I can understand <laughs> how you would get that wrong. Like I am in many ways like you know, You're a like, Nikki Haley voter. I'm a soccer. I'm like I'm not a soccer mom because neither of my children play sports. Uh, I'm not a security mom, but I am the kind of I, like I'm a like capital M mom that people like to invent trends around, and therefore like, you know, I someone who didn't know me could look at me and be like, she might be a Glenn Youngkin voter. She mm. might care about whether the schools were closed. You don't even live and in Virginia. I don't live in Virginia. I don't even live close to the Virginia line. But. Um, I sort of forget where I was going with all of this. <laughs> Nikki Haley was on SNL and people were like, that's just as bad as putting Trump on it. And that's just dumb. Yes. It's all it's dumb on every level. In some ways, it's funnier than anything that happened in the Nikki Haley sketches yes. on SNL. Also, it's funny, but also a little bit infuriating that there are still people who write for prominent publications who cannot... who tell the difference, who refuse to tell the difference between Donald Trump and any other candidate. And look, I, I don't think you can blame your blame the media. At, at, like, that's not a sufficient explanation for why Donald Trump is the leading candidate in the Republican primary again. It doesn't tell us everything, but it doesn't tell us nothing at all either. And there is a real sense in which Trump voters and a lot of the most hardcore Trump voters, it's not it's not that they're voting for Trump just because of one bad Guardian column or even because of many years of bad columns in publications like The Guardian. At the same time, when you talk to them about what they like about Trump, one of the things that you hear pretty consistently from Trump voters is, well, you know, we're going to vote for this guy because if we voted for somebody else, we'd be told that person is just as bad as Trump. We'd be told there's no difference. Okay, you're going to tell us there's no difference, then then we'll take you at your word. And it's so, like, without saying there's a through line or direct causation, there's not, and people are responsible for their own votes. And I'm always like a little wary of, oh, it's it's the dumb media, even though the media is often, often publishes dumb things. Uh, that's true. But what is causing this it is at least a sort of a a kind of a a marginal factor here in the environment that did help create the Donald Trump phenomenon. I, I, I also just think, I think productions and institutions that are designed, real, that are supposed to be about entertainment and even about political entertainment, I, I agree with Sonny here. Like, it is, it is really long past time to, like, create a separation there between at least between SNL and like official top level political candidates. And this isn't something that's new. It didn't start with Donald Trump going on SNL. It didn't start. I mean, it goes back to Nixon. But I mean, I, I just pulled up a video just to make sure I wasn't hallucinating it. I just pulled up a video on YouTube that our older listeners may remember very well of Bill Clinton playing saxophone on Arsenio Hall. That really happened, folks. It was a, a an actual thing in a like a in our culture in the 1990s. But like all of this is dumb and terrible, and and I, you know I I guess the the bad columns are funnier than 
Saturday Night Live is, but... You know, I, I, I'll push back on that slightly insofar as I think it's fine for politicians to go on interview-style shows, right? If you're going on uh, an Arsenio Hall or a Tonight Show or a Today Show or Late Night, whatever, and you're sitting there and you're answering questions, even if it's, like, kind of a friendly venue, like, I, I don't think anyone's expecting, you know, Jake Tapper-style questions uh, at these things, but, like... At least there, it's like, okay, they're asking questions. This is, but like the SNL thing drives me kind of crazy because it's, they're never funny. They're never funny. They're never actually funny, uh, which is the, you know, the raison d'etre of the show. But also, like, they. Wait it's, a minute. I've seen SNL. It's not obvious that it's intended to be funny. That's a funny show. It's frequently meant to be, it's frequently attempts to be funny. But, like, I. I Speaking I, of attempts to be funny, let's talk about this week's movie. No. Um. That's, yeah, we'll get to that in a second. But that, but, like, all right, so, like, you, you, it's not just that it's toothless or, and, you know, quote unquote, humanizing bad people that we disagree with, whatever. It's just like destroying the reason for the show. If I was in charge of SNL, I would have one last have a candidate segment on and I would just nuke them from orbit with all sorts of unscripted stuff. And like then nobody would ever do it again because they would all be terrified because I this is the only way this is going to end. <laughs> That's the only way this is going to end. Sonny's plan, as always, is to bomb people metaphorically or for real. It doesn't yeah. matter which. Well, it's the only way to be sure. You nuke them from orbit. <laughs> I've seen that as movie. As we know. It's a as good movie. Uh, maybe, maybe let me criticize my own position here and say that uh, actually it's totally fine that, uh, that Nikki Haley and other candidates are on SNL because it's not obviously any less funny. When she's on, I don't know, I guess I'm not a big SNL watcher, but it doesn't seem like it's been particularly funny for a long time. You're it's not a comedy watcher in general, though. You you do not watch comedies on well, TV. Well, not, not that kind of television comedy, that's true, but uh, the... One of the mistakes here that is that gets made when people gripe about this, in addition to to being very wrong, that there's no difference at all between Donald Trump and Nikki Haley. Uh, just for the record, you can where I find many of my opinions about Nikki Haley all over the internet. Uh, but I agree with her on some stuff. I think she's very worrying about the stuff that I make fun of Sonny for. She likes to bomb people, and that's bad. But Some people got it coming. The, the, one, the other mistake here is thinking that this stuff is in some way determinative or like really meaningful or you know that platforming Nikki Haley is is just like this great sin that SNL needs to atone for come on it's a comedy show that's actually a really good point Peter and unless I, I, I want to get your take on this because there uh, another re response uh to Nikki Haley's appearance that I saw was I, I saw several several folks on social media saying that Io Edabiri who was the the host she's you know kind of a she's having a hot moment right now star of the bear and uh she was in bottoms and she's very funny everybody likes her but they she's were like in the this... sweet east which is excellent you keep talking about this movie that we're never going to watch uh but I, I i take i take your i take your word for it that it's excellent but the i saw people saying like oh this should be the end of her indie darling status Are you know you how how me? dare she how dare she uh associate with these people and i'm just like i'm sorry there's this almost sense of contagion like personal contagion which is which is how so many people 
organize their day-to-day life. I, I don't really know where I'm going with this, except to say that I think that it's 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 an interesting phenomenon that kind of dovetails with this idea that we are all judged by what we consume and what we pay for and that sort of thing. It's a, it's a weirdly consumerist critique of modern society and art. You mean like how Taylor Swift brought Zionist Lana Del Rey to the Grammys with her and therefore should be like shot into the sun? Exactly, I mean, exactly. I don't know, man. Um, I think people's relationships with celebrities are too intense. That's something we've talked about on this podcast here. Um, It's better to have a real life than to write 5,000 words in the New York Times about how Taylor Swift owes it to you to be gay. Um, And also just like... (laughs) It's a real thing that happened. (laughs) What is it that... What is it that people want from celebrities, right? Like... If this poor actress had, like, refused to participate in this skit, I just – I don't understand what people want here, right? Like, do they want all of their celebrity icons to, like, sit under a tree and attain enlightenment by the Buddha and by the sheer force of their Beyonce-ness or Taylor Swiftness or Ayurveda Berry-ness, like, solve everything? I just – You know, and I am someone who comes from a point of, you know, having been more sort of absolutist and doctrinaire about this stuff than I am today, in part because I just can't figure out what the point is, right? Like, Mickey Haley's policy positions are bad. I don't know. I can't even say at this point that she would, like, get us into wars that Joe Biden is not going to get us into because the world is falling apart and everything is terrible and people keep attacking shipping lanes. But Too um, many wars. We agree on this. Um, but I just, I don't understand what people, (laughs) I just don't understand what people want their famous people to do and what effect they think it will have, right? It's like, and I don't think people understand that there are costs to this stuff, right? I mean, what is an indie darling actress who, you know, whose like managers probably booked her on SNL and thought it was a big get. Like, what is she supposed to do under these circumstances? Is she the one with the power here? Is Lauren Michaels the one with the power here? Like, you know, what is Kenan Thompson doing in this? Like, what do people want? What do people think is going to happen? What do people think is going to be achieved? I don't understand. These people want the artist to look into the camera and say, I am exactly the sort of liberal or conservative that you are, and I agree with all of your policy positions. That's literally what they want. That's all they want. what happens the next day, right? Like, what happens to the rest of your life and your politics and your work? Well, then you're happy. Then you're happy once the artist says that they agree with you on everything. Like, does your rent suddenly become um like does your rent burden suddenly become a manageable percentage of your income like no does... like I, I saw the tetris movie and it like totally confirmed all of my political priors and then i was happy after that and i've been happy for the last like seven months because i had one movie that confirmed all of my political priors and i'm good now but and it's like i think it's easy to make fun of this but i do like freddie DeBoer, whose Substack i think all of us you know read off and on you know has, spends a lot of time just harping against consumption as politics and there's something sort of especially creepy about the consumption of other human beings as politics right like the idea that another human being with agency and obligations and pressure and like cross pressures in their life and professional life not only owes you something but that is able to do what conventional politics can't or has not proven able to do is 
not only weird and creepy on its face, but sort of self-defeating and deflating as a form of politics. And I hate it. And also, who cares about SNL? I mean, truly, what are the ratings for Saturday Night Live, right? Like, what did Nikki Haley accomplish by going on this show? Like, I thought she came across as, like, pretty game in a lame sketch. The, like, should have said it was slavery the first time. It's like, that's actually the kind of thing politicians should do more of in their interactions with, like, the normal human press. Um, But this doesn't matter for Nikki Haley. It doesn't matter for anybody. It's just, it's... The snake is like has finished eating its own tail and is like up to the crown of its head. And we're almost done with this cycle here. It's also stupid. Alyssa, you're totally correct to point out that the process ask here makes no sense to the extent that there even is one. And for the most part, there isn't a process ask. It's just I wish nothing that I dislike would ever happen because it makes me upset, which is terrible and ridiculous. But it's also it's also just totally Anti art. You just don't get good art by it's anti by getting it's anti it's anti it's, it's anti human, Peter. Right? Like it's anti the idea that other human beings exist as independent actors yeah. is you know does literally not, as actors in this case. Yeah, is zeroed out in this worldview in a way that is just anti human and disturbing. Right? Like is do what is what people want to slap on is like stupid virtual reality goggles that all the tech titans are trying to Oh wait, I'm in favor of this. And just disappear. Like do people want to be plugged into the matrix cuz kind of what it sounds like is that a lot of people just want to live in the matrix. And like I want my Apple Visor Pro to come is that what it's called? I want the dumb Apple thing that you slap on your face to it's come the with an face. To come with an app that makes everybody say the things I want to hear from them. So, like, if if uh, if I'm watching SNL instead of seeing the actual skit, Iowa Beery comes on and says, "Well, I would never vote for Trump, and nobody else would either." Great Back news, Sonny. With AI, they can actually do this now. I think they that's can true. Take clips of people on podcasts or on the news, and they can make them say things that they totally didn't say. And if you look at them, and you even if you th- that person is your friend, like, and you 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 know they wouldn't say that, you'd be like, that looks suspiciously like my friend saying something that they wouldn't say. It's great. I love the future. I realize that I sound like I'm just losing my ever-loving mind on this podcast. Oh, that's just everyone. Um, But in all seriousness, right? Like, it's one thing to choose to be plugged back into the Matrix when the option is, like, gruel and, like, weird clothes and being cold forever and being hunted by robots. But the desire to sort of be plugged into a frictionless existence when the world exists and, like, there are dogs and cocktails and Peter's insane sound system and children and playgrounds and, you know, the work of, like, color field painters and Monet. And just why do you want that, right? Like, People are insane. Alyssa's having an existential crisis, so we need to move on. Uh, All right. So is it a controversy or a controversy that Nikki Haley appeared on Saturday Night Live? Alyssa. It's a controversy. Peter. It's a controversy, but maybe it's a controversy that we just spent 20 minutes talking about it. It's a controversy. I demand the next time one of these politicians <laughs> shows up on the, on one of these shows, one of the actors who is on the scene just starts saying things that aren't in the script or on the cue cards and like starts just, just to blow them up. 
just just destroy them and so nobody will ever do this again that's that's how this ends this only ends with a, a feat of rhetorical violence because violence works all right uh life is, is not a Zack snyder movie sonny we're done with this segment all right make sure to swing by bulwark plus for our bonus episode on friday uh in which we're going to give you a recommendation on what to watch because it's just a wasteland out there folks it's just empty multiplexes everywhere terrible i feel bad for the theater owners having to rely on underwhelming fare like argyle to fill auditoriums Speaking of which, on to the main event. Argyle. Argyle. The latest Pirates favorite spy movie. The the latest from Matthew Vaughn, who is the director of uh, One Jonathan V. Last's all-time favorite movie, Layer Cake, as well as the Kingsman series, which I like a great deal. And the underappreciated kitty fantasy flick, Stardust, is like the Kingsman movies, another spy flick. Kinda, sorta. Spoilers for the movie are to come. So please log off. Now, if you don't want to learn who the real Agent Argyle is, we're gonna tell you right now. All right, so here's the setup. Ellie Conway, uh, played by Bryce Dallas Howard, is a spy novelist who is putting the finishing touches on the fifth book in her Agent Argyle series. Uh, We see the book as she imagines it in her head. Uh, Aubrey Argyle is brought to life by Henry Cavill, who teams up with an agent who's played by John Cena to stop bad guys from destroying the world or some such, doesn't really matter. Uh, When Ellie decides to visit her mother to get some advice on how to wrap up the book, she is stopped by Aiden uh, on the train she's traveling on. He is played by Sam Rockwell, and he informs her that everything in her books has actually happened. She can predict the future, more or less. She seems to be predicting world events. In order to see what happens next, Aiden needs her to write the final chapter so he can get the drop on a group of special operatives turned rogue agents so he can get the chip that has the thing it doesn't matter. Turns out the MacGuffin. Ellie, you mean the MacGuffin? The MacGuffin. Uh, it, 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 he's got to get the MacGuffin. It's the Turns, knock list. We, that's exactly. That's how I described it in my review. It's basically the knock list from uh, Mission Impossible uh, all over again. All right. So anyway, it turns out here's here's the big reveal. Turns out that Ellie is actually a spy herself. She's suffering from amnesia, and for the last five years as she's had the amnesia, she's been writing these books as part of an evil plot arranged by a devilish syndicate to get her to reveal all of her secrets to them. Again, like the knock list is basically what this comes down to. Turns out the real Agent Argyle was Ellie Conway all along. The problem with Argyle. (laughs) The problem with Argyle. The first problem with Argyle isn't just that it's derivative, though it is that. It is the the real problem here is that it's interminably derivative. Every scene goes on about 20% longer than it should. Vaughn has mistakenly bought into this idea that more twists and turns uh, you have make the movie better. This picture has remarkably bad pacing issues. It just drags, like every scene just goes on way too long. But even that would be defensible. You know, sometimes movies drag a little bit if they lead to fantastic set pieces. Like, I think you can make the argument that the Mission Impossible movies drag a little bit. They often frequently go on very long in the exposition-y bits or where they're getting from scene to scene. But those culminate with like Tom Cruise jumping a, a motorcycle off a mountainside, right? Here, all we get is Rockwell and Howard standing in front of a bunch of green screens. And this is the actual interesting thing about Argyle, I think. It's not the plotting or the reveal or the attempt to tie it into the Kingsman universe of films, which this movie does in a post credit scene. No, it's, that it, it's a rather perfect distillation of everything that's wrong with the visual look of the modern streaming blockbuster. 
I do not remember a single exterior shot that felt real, that felt as if it was taking in a place in a real area with like actual locations, right? Everything has the look and the vibe of green screens. And at first I thought that Vaughn was maybe using the unreality of the green screen to heighten the artificiality of the books Conway is writing, right? Like when her agent... Argyle is watching Hong Kong fireworks go off, and then that scene kind of melts away and words appear on the screen. It's like, okay, yes, this kind of works. It's like her idea of it. But then that same artificial look is endemic to everything in the movie, to the real world she inhabits, to there's like a rooftop fight in London that looks uh, 100% like it took place in a warehouse in Atlanta somewhere where all the walls are covered with green. Uh, the, the interior and the exterior of a tanker ship look the same, fake, awful, just bad. Um, it's really distracting. It's really distracting. And again, it, it like kind of defines this whole era of big budget streaming pictures. Red Notice was the place where this was most egregious. Um, but you also see it in the Star Wars shows. Every flying sequence in uh, Zack Snyder's Rebel Moon was a disaster. Just looked terrible. A everything looks off. There's something wrong with the light. There's something wrong with the backgrounds. There's something uh, wrong with the focus of these things. There, it, there's a weird parallax sensation that is created when the stationary objects in a room are are kind of put up against the, the screen. It just it doesn't move right. It all looks unnervingly unreal. There's a very real Uncanny Valley type effect happening here. I hate it. I want to be clear, if you can't tell, I hate this. I hate how it looks. Um, but I do think it's, it is interestingly specific. And like in 20 years, people are going to look back on this period of time and be like, oh yeah, this was a movie that was made between 2019 and 2025 or so. Um, just by looking at the backgrounds of these movies. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. Peter, why is this movie so bad? You are correct about how bad this movie looks. And what's even more incredible is that Apple, which is the sort of principal backer here, which paid for, which bought the production and paid for the development and production here, even though there's a different studio that's doing the theatrical release here. This is kind of primarily an Apple film intended for Apple TV+. And Apple paid $200 million for this movie. Now, that doesn't mean that this is equivalent to a $200 million uh, production budget, but uh, because the way that these things work is that with streaming deals, they typically buy out the back end. When I say buy out the back end, what I mean is that these that the stars and the above the line talent, the sort of top talent here, would typically have gotten a big share of an of an expected large box office gross. This is getting only a kind of token box office release. It's not made very much money, and so there's not very much money to to be had there. And so as a result, what Apple does, what Netflix does, also for a lot of these films, is they pay the top-of-the-line talent uh, up front, essentially as if the movie had made a lot of money. And so that makes this a $200 million movie, and it just looks awful. It looks cheap and fake and weird and distancing in a way that isn't interesting. It's at best, it's sort of cartoony in a way that you could maybe argue, well, it sort of works for the metafiction of this movie. Sonny, you talked about that. But then there's this further problem, which is that the movie keeps trying to create a distinction between the elevated, silly, fictional reality of Ellie's books 
and then her real world reality where she is caught up in something with Sam Rockwell, who's a real spy. And the movie gestures at this up front when we first see Sam Rockwell. He's uh, he's not big and buff. He's got at that point uh, long hair. Um, he's sort of scraggly and kind of almost dressed like a, a, a kind of a, a bum, right? And he notes the contrast between how he looks and how her dashing super spy of her novels looks. But then, then the movie ends up engaging in exactly the same sort of ridiculous cartoon unreality that it is trying to draw a distinction with. And maybe you can then further argue, well, actually, it is all the reality because her books were a real thing that happened. And in fact, this is all real. But it doesn't, it just doesn't make, it's not just that it doesn't make sense. It's that it doesn't tie together. And visually, it looks kind of garbagey. There's some creative bits here. There are some some interesting ideas in the set pieces, but they don't seem to be drawn from anything in the world. And you can see what Matthew Vaughn is going for. If you've seen the Kingsman films, he has a bunch of kind of cartoony set piece action scenes in those movies. You can think of the first Kingsman movie where it, it resolves in this absolutely kind of over-the-top, glorious, exploding heads bit where all of the kind of we would call them liberal elite, the global anti-populist. The global elite have all gathered, uh, right, in their secret, you know, super rich person chamber, and they all explode in this sort of ridiculously colorful thing. And it's it's supposed to be cartoony. It's supposed to be uh, almost a, a Looney Tunes, Bugs Bunny-ish, uh, you know, take on James Bond. But here, the movie wants to create a distinction between the real world, which is more grounded and more realistic, and the fictional world, but then it doesn't bother to make that distinction ever. And it's totally, totally dissociated. Like, it it just, it ruins the the metafictional conceit of this movie. But then there, there are the pacing problems. And Sonny, I actually slightly disagree with you. The first 25 minutes or so of this movie are paced, I wouldn't say great, but about, but not so bad. Up through the train sequence, which marks the, the the transition from the first act to the second act, this movie almost works. It threatens to work. It seems like it is poised to be, uh, maybe not great, but a, a perfectly fine and enjoyable trifle. And the instant that train sequence is over and we get into the second act, I just like wanted to... F- either fall asleep in my very cushy Alamo lounge chair or get up and go for a walk because nothing happens then for the next hour. There's some there's some really ridiculous twists, but they spend all of this time just kind of chattering about, uh, about the knocklist thing, which you don't ever care about, which is a total like useless MacGuffin. None of us can ever even remember particularly what it is. They go to a statue in, in London, I think, and just have this absolutely interminable conversation about satellites that like it's it's not a conversation about anything that's real or that matters or that uh, is determinant of the characters or the plot. They're just they're just like forgot. babbling crap. But Peter, you forgot that Samuel L. Jackson gets to have a vineyard. Yes, also Samuel L. Jackson gets to have a vineyard that I wouldn't bet a lot of money because I'm not a betting man, but I would bet a small amount of money that all of the outside vineyard sequences are effects creations of some sort, that they are never actually walking around a real vineyard. That whole sequence, maybe if they were at an actual vineyard, then that's amazing because the whole thing looks so incredibly fake. And then, yes, but then also like Sam Jackson shows up at the end of the second act to 
have a vineyard and sit at a desk and some and like a like for the third act, watch as a meter gets filled on the and screen yell. in front when, of him. When and he's he not goes, watching a Lakers when game. When he's does, not watching yes. a Lakers That's game. That's true. Yes. He also watches basketball. What the hell is this movie? Why is it two hours and twenty minutes long? So there is long. there is possibly there is possibly even without really reshooting stuff, a one hour and fifty-five minute breezy cut of this movie that is watchable and that I would give a pass. But this just doesn't work. And so by the time you get to the 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 most over the top, most interesting, most creative, still bad looking, but but interestingly staged set pieces in the third act, which should just hit you as a kind of a a glorious insane riot, you are so bored that they don't land at all. But uh, the problem with those sequences, Alyssa, is that uh, Vaughn has done that sort of thing better. I mean, uh, Peter mentioned the exploding head sequence from the end of the first Kingsman movie, and that's basically what the big, like, color smoke scene uh, calls to mind at the end of this movie. Um, or or that, that awful, I don't know how you guys felt about this, but the awful oil skating scene. Well, yes, yeah, what? Where she's like, she's like doing, she's doing uh, figure skating, but she's got a gun and she's on an oil slick. And like, well, all right, this oh, could and be she's like. Mur- no, no, no. It's not just a gun. She's murdering people with a bayonet on an oil yes. slick. Yes. She's, she's using a bayonet. And like, it's the sort of thing that like, okay, this could be kind of interesting, but it but it all looks so cheap and bad that it it just is terrible and aggravating. Right? There's Am clearly no oil in that sequence. It's amazing how fake the oil looks like. Everything it looks, looks like so the, the globby uh, like weird oil slick monster that kills Tasha Yar in the first or second season of Star Trek: The Next Generation, yeah. which was like a TV budget effects in you know 1987. Yeah, and we haven't even talked about the sort of you know what's supposed to be a cutesy like normal mousy woman like turns into super spy, but then it's revealed that she's like actually a super spy who's been brainwashed into being like a mousy novelist. Um, which is just done with no sort of charm or interest here. I love the Melissa McCarthy movie, Spy. It's one of my favorite comedies the last 10 or 15 years. I think she is she is hilarious in it. Jason Statham is hilarious in it. Jude Law is har- hilarious in it. Rose Byrne, who doesn't really do comedy anymore, is hilarious in it. It's just, it's a genuinely hilarious movie. And, you know, that is a movie that is really interested in the expectations of, you know, a woman who is not particularly glamorous and whose, you know, body is of a certain size and who has sort of had this desk job and this intense, you know, attachment to someone who is probably never going to love her back. And then, you know, sort of builds your respect for her as you actually see her in the field. And this movie takes this person who it's like, you know, not only is like sort of like presented as like mousy and pathetic, but as like an agoraphobic weird cat lady. And then it's just like, oh, magic. Actually, she's not this at all, right? There's not a journey here because the character just keeps getting told things then being like, oh, okay. Like, I'll go along with that. That's fun. And so there's no real character arc here at all. It's just like, the, and reveals are not a character arc, right? I mean, like- yeah. Having Brian Cranston, like the ostensible bad guy, be like, oh, actually, like, you know, be, I've been masquerading as your dad and, you know, her mom is actually some therapist. It's like none of these characters are people. They're just like 
expensive paper dolls that Matthew Vaughn is like shaking around in some CGI colored smoke and over an oil spill, right? And events are not in and of themselves interesting. Plot is not in and of itself interesting. And there are a lot of things that happen in this movie, but none of them mean anything. Especially when the plot is weirdly kind of a like a a ripoff slash retrograde copy of the plot of the great 1980s Arnold Schwarzenegger movie Total Recall, where I, I don't want to spoil. Like I kind of do want to spoil Argyle for uh, for listeners here, but I'm not spoil going it. to. It's but I'll spoiled. just say if you've seen Total Recall and you know how, like the the insane twisty way that that movie, which is which does all the things, all the so many of the things that this movie tries to do, uh, much better. It is it is an insane kind of over the top romp with a whole bunch of twists that I kind of, you know, if you're like really going to think about them, they don't exactly make sense, but it's, it's shorter. Uh, the action scenes are, are much better. Just every one of the little, of the little bits, uh, is dialed in to create something like tension. And so even though it is cartoony and ridiculous, it is also just like, a. it's not a, I don't know, a Criterion classic, though maybe Criterion, but like it's one of these like great cartoon ridiculous movies that just works on its own weird terms. And you can kind of see Matthew Vaughn going for that here. And it just just doesn't work on a tonal level at all. In addition to the fact that so many of the scenes are absolutely worthless. You just get no information and they're not entertaining. And a scene has to do has to do something. In a movie, and even in a long movie, even in a two and a half hour movie, if you're going to waste four minutes of screen time, then it should be either very funny, very entertaining, very cool, or very relevant to the story or the characters. And we get, I don't know, six scenes in this movie that are three to six minutes long that you're like, eh, this, this is not entertaining, and it didn't deliver any information. This is the thing, right, is that I can I can excuse a lot of bad plotting or unnecessary plotting or like lazy MacGuffins if if you bring us to a point where like, OK, something something great and exciting is about to happen. Like like the, the most re I mentioned the most recent Mission Impossible, but that's a that's like a perfect example of a movie that can be insanely generic. I mean, literally, the, the plot of that movie is the entity needs to get the algorithm or something some some like ridiculous like just awful nonsense uh sequence down, sequence of man. words elemental it's yeah sure right um but but like that movie. but that's fine because what it what it, all of that is in surface in service of getting us to venice where there are some great fistfights that are going to happen or to the streets of rome where there's going to be a, an awesome car chase or to the aforementioned motorcycle that uh, jump that that tom cruise is going to do like you can have a dumb plot so long as you're paying it off in other ways and this movie just doesn't pay it off in any in any way, I am like I'm genuinely kind of shocked that Matthew Vaughn, who, again, is a filmmaker who I think has no small amount of talent. I think he's actually a pretty good filmmaker. I will defend all of the Kingsman movies, even though I know I'm in, in rare company there. But third the, one's a bit of a mess, but it's at least an interesting mess. It's fascinating. It's a fascinating movie, but the, it's neither here nor there. I, I just can't believe he looked at this and was like, yeah, this this works. This this is good enough. I'm, well, I'm, apparently he well, wants to turn this not only into a franchise, but maybe kind of into two franchises, one of which is the Argyle books, 
whatever the books are called in the, the movie. And then the other one is Argyle the Metafiction. But then he also wants to connect this kind of dual franchise to the Kingsman franchises yes. and have a have a a spy universe. Like a, a, a cinematic like, universe that Alyssa is going to have to learn all the lore for and see, like, if it works, it like it's it just means that three times a year we can watch, we can go to the movies and talk about Matthew Vaughn's spy verse. And she's Alyssa is having such a good time right now. You guys can't see it. And uh, I'm just excited for the Disney Plus show that adds to the backstory of the Kingsman Argyle cinematic universe. If this happens, I will quit this podcast. <laughs> I was not, sorry. It'll be on Apple TV. It'll be on Apple TV. Do not manifest this into the world. All right. <laughs> uh, thumbs up or thumbs down on Argyle. Alyssa. Oh, my God. Thumbs down. It's so terrible. Peter. Thumbs down. Thumbs thumbs down. It's not a bad movie. I I really wanted to like this movie again. I, I like Matthew Vaughn a lot, but man, it's not not good. All right. That is it for today's show. Many thanks for our audio engineer, Jonathan Siri, without whom this program would sound much worse. Make sure to swing by Bulwark Plus on Friday for our bonus episode. Tell your friends a strong recommendation from a friend is basically the only way to grow podcast audiences. If you don't grow, we will die. If you did not love today's episode, please complain to me on Twitter at Sunny Bunch. I'll convince you that it is, in fact, the best show in your podcast feed. See you guys on Friday. Bye.